we're going to, I'm just going to talk a little bit this afternoon. Uh, we're not going to look at any one particular passage except um, Rev, uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 19. I'm going to point you to one verse in particular there. So if you want to open your Bible and look at that one, that would be helpful. <clears throat> but uh, I do want to address the subject this afternoon of social justice for a few minutes. Um, I'm by no means going to treat it exhaustively. This is something that Christians need to interact with a lot more thoughtfully, a lot more biblically, um, because it is, of course, such a big topic uh, in our country. We see it, hear about social justice in the news. We hear about it in the broader culture. Um, and it's, of course, even uh, a big topic of conversation in, in churches. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention, you probably have heard uh, a couple of years ago, I guess it was 2019, didn't have a convention last year, but two years ago introduced a uh, resolution that identified uh, critical race theory and intersectionality as uh, useful analytic tools to promote social justice um, among the churches. The uh, PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, has also dealt with um, social justice issues on a number of fronts. Um, many churches are, are grappling with it and trying to understand uh, the ramifications of uh, calls for social justice for Christians. So it, it's, it's surely something that Christians need to continue to think about, uh, but to think about from an absolute commitment to the Word of God. And of course, that's, that's the challenge, right? Uh, I'm not going to go very much into depth on, on either, either of the things I mentioned, but let me give you um, a brief sort of working definition of these <clears throat> some of these terms. Stanford gives the description, this description of critical theory. <clears throat> critical theory is the narrow in the narrow sense designates several generations of German philosophers and social theorists in the Western European Marxist tradition known as the Frankfurt School. It tends to be critical of capitalism and what it sees as traditional Western power structures. Everything is viewed in terms of power dynamics and oppressors and oppressed. Uh, the term intersect intersectionality <clears throat> basically is the idea of the intersection <clears throat> of a person's minority identities. So someone might identify as a minority race or gender or a minority with disabilities of some sort or a sexual minority in terms of their sexual identity or an income minority or, you know, you name it. Um, any sort of uh, label that might um, designate that person as not being in the mainstream of the broader culture. So it is the intersection of a person's various minority identities that creates a unique complex of discrimination which they have had to face. <clears throat> While there might be some true things that some of the people who are writing from some of these perspectives say, um, just like People who are wrong about a whole lot of things can say some things that are, in fact, true. 
while that is the case, the basic foundational principles and the overall structure of thought of these viewpoints diverges <clears throat> uh, radically from a biblical worldview of humanity, of sin, of redemption, and so forth. <clears throat> and again, my point uh, this afternoon is not to go, uh, not to. I guess maybe not my point, but my the scope of my talk is not to deal with with this in depth. Um, there's some other good folks that have done that. Tom Askell, I think, has done quite a bit um, on social justice and some of the different aspects of the movement. Um, I, I recently started listening to a video of a series of lectures that Owen Strayan did uh, that that seemed to be pretty helpful. But there, there are good things out there, I'm sure. Um, but I, I just at least wanted to uh, address one very narrow part of it, <clears throat> just to remind us to try to think well. Um, these philosophies are sometimes wrapped up in the terminology of social justice. And of course, all justice is social in one respect, right? I mean, justice has to do with how people treat each other. Um, Justice is a very biblical concept, a very biblical idea, and uh, all justice involves society. So social justice is not inherently a bad word. It's not inherently an unbiblical concept. And I wanted to pause right here to issue a heartfelt caution from my heart to yours, <clears throat> to warn us as conservative Bible-believing people not to be too quick to write off and dismiss any teacher, preacher, pastor, theologian who discusses things like race or ethnic harmony or social problems or even entrenched sin. Any, I say again, not to be quick to just dismiss any pastor, preacher, teacher, theologian who uses this kind of terminology, especially if that person has a long track record of careful, thoughtful, robust, biblical commitment. Okay? In other words, I, I, I do think that there is some danger as we're you know, doing our best in our little small ways to try to grapple with what people are talking about. And there's so much out there. I mean, you know, I started reading just a little bit of, of some of the, the writers of some of this material, and it's just, it is kind of overwhelming how much there, there is. Um, <clears throat> but as we're trying to grapple with that, and then we hear some person whom we have admired talking about race, and we tend to almost just sort of lump everybody together. Well, they must be on the boat, on the bandwagon of, you know, critical theory and, and, and social justice, uh, those sorts of things. And I think we're in danger of, a, of at least two things um, sometimes in the way that we react. On the one hand, we may be in danger of, of hyperbole and exaggeration. And by that, I, what I mean is this. I've heard um, sometimes some conservative people um, reacting to 
otherwise really orthodox preachers and teachers who may have said something that they disagreed with in the realm of social justice and writing them off as a heretic. So, so I, would, I would reserve that word for pretty foundational um, problems in Christianity, the kind of differences that we would have over the core fundamental truths of Christianity. That the differences there make someone a heretic. If he's, if he's denying the doctrine of the Trinity, that's heretical. All right, if he's denying um, some fundamental core of the Christian faith. But um, even if we think that people are wrong, and we can be totally convinced that people are wrong, that may not necessarily make them a heretic, all right? Um, depending on how they continue to pursue those things and, and so forth. So I would say in one sense, there is a danger of hyperbole. In another sense, um, in, an, in another uh, danger is of the real possibility of slander of our Christian brothers and sisters. You know, we sometimes, and this is just a concern, I'm just sharing from my heart here, we, we read a so-called discernment blog who said, oh, here's some proof that this person or that person or this theologian and that pastor, they're all social justice warriors and, you know, quote a little something or talk about it. And, you know, we're trying our best to work through all of the information that's out there. We're having to use somebody's second-hand, maybe third-hand or whatever knowledge of what somebody said. And maybe somebody did say something that out of context could be misconstrued or maybe even was incorrect in some ways, but uh, set into the broader context of everything that they've taught and preached is uh, is something pretty minor indeed, and in fact, maybe we're totally misunderstanding where they're coming from. It's just a possibility that I wanted to remind us to be careful to really understand people before we say, "Oh, they're 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 you know going down the tubes. Their ministry is is not good." Um, and I'm not I don't <laughs> I'm not naming any names or because I I can't I haven't read everything that everybody said and. And uh, I think sometimes people uh, people do say things that uh, that uh, are open to misunderstanding if we're not very careful. So those are my cautions. All right, good. Make sense? I hope so. However, the social justice movement, as a movement, in general terms, uh, I think is problematic in at least three ways. One is the danger of substituting a ramification of the gospel with the gospel itself. That is, the substitution of the ramification of the gospel, namely dealing with social ills, the substitution of that with the gospel itself, dealing with the need for individual heart transformation and regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, In particular, I'm referring to the danger of replacing the gospel with a sort of rehashing of liberation theology and the old social gospel with uh, kind of getting those things rehashed together with the with the theories of postmodernism, and that's kind of what's 
coming to the forefront as kind of the new gospel and is, is, is threatening not only to replace the gospel itself, but to then pervert the gospel. At the very least, I think we're in danger of putting the results and the ramifications of regeneration in the place of the need for regeneration. Number two, I think that the social justice movement takes something good, namely the struggle against racism, takes something good and hijacks it to use as a kind of Trojan horse or an ungodly agenda. Social social justice movement, as a movement in general, takes something good, namely the struggle against racism, and hijacks it, uses it as a Trojan horse for a kind of ungodly agenda. I mentioned already intersectionality, and um, one of the the dangers that that is inherent, that, that comes out in the social justice movement, is an attachment of racism to all kinds of other things, namely uh, radical feminism, which teaches that male power is, is, is the great problem of the world, or the LGBTQ++ whatever agenda. Um, years ago, there was a little saying, um, gay is the new black. And the idea was to hitch the homosexual agenda to racism. And if you can make that link, then people who are sympathetic to the evils of racism may be more sympathetic to um, to the LGBTQ uh, agenda. And that's, that's happening now, of course. It continues to happen, and, and you just kind of fill in the blank. Trans is the new black. And and so all of these sort of ungodly um, pieces of, of, of philosophy are being hitched to, are being sold under this banner of anti-racism. And and it, and it, and it, and it, and it's, uh, I think that's one, one of the great dangers. Another um, example of this is socialism and Marxism. <clears throat> one of the most, uh, and those coming in under the banner of, uh, of anti-racism. And so if you don't want to be a racist, then you also need to buy in to these philosophies, or else you are a racist. And, and so, again, I say it's, it's being hijacked and being used as a Trojan horse. Um, of course, one of the most fundamental assumptions in biblical economics is the propriety of private property, as summarized in the Eighth Commandment, right? Thou shalt not steal. And in the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's. In other words, the biblical assumption is that something is your neighbor's, Something is yours. Something is not yours. It belongs to your neighbor. <clears throat> and so there is a kind of, again, the idea is that 
We're bringing in a philosophy that is not in line with a, a biblical worldview, but under the guise of fighting against racism. And that, of course, makes it very, very difficult for people who are sensitive about, um, about the evils that have been done uh, in racist, in, through racism. So that's a second danger. A third danger of the social justice movement is operating, um, operating without real biblical definitions of things. <laughs> and one of the most uh, obvious, really the only one I want to deal with this morning is uh, the, uh, this afternoon is the uh, topic, the uh, terminology of justice, biblical justice. The social justice movement operates, as I say, under an unbiblical definition of justice. And of course, behind every understanding of justice is a worldview. Um, A positive exposition of what biblical justice is would take, well, quite a while, more time than we have this afternoon. It would basically be an exposition of the moral law of God and its application to all of life. We see it worked out principially in the Old Testament civil law. But it's a working out of God's word. It's a working out of God's law in in the way that life is, is organized. In other words, God and God alone is the standard of what's just, right? Because justice is closely tied to the idea of righteousness. Justice and righteousness are only defined by God, God alone. This is why no one can talk about justice from a standpoint of neutrality. We all have to ask, what do you mean by justice? And what one person means is not necessarily what the next person means. So again, I say, uh, one of the problems is an un, is is a an unbiblical understanding of, of of what justice is, and it's really only that one thing that I want to to touch on here this afternoon. And the passage that I had you turn to was Leviticus. Uh, did I say nineteen? Chapter nineteen, verse fifteen. Leviticus nineteen fifteen. <clears throat> here is uh, the term injustice used in a biblically defined way. Uh, Maybe not defined, but illustrated. Uh, Leviticus 19.15. Leviticus 19.15. The Lord says, You shall do no injustice in court. Then He elaborates, You shall not be partial to the poor or... Defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And of course, the Lord, throughout the rest of the scriptures, uh, particularly here in the in the in the Mosaic economy, and He's describing what just what righteousness is, what it looks like, what it looks like um, before God, what it looks like in terms of your social relationships. And justice is doing righteousness and making sure righteousness is applied evenly across the board both to the rich and to the poor. And he's specifically um, prohibiting us, prohibiting God's people from being partial to the poor or 
being partial to the the rich, to the great, deferring to the great. There used to be an old saying, justice is blind, right? You have this justice with the blindfold on. Well, social justice is not blind. The social justice movement is activist. It is redistributive of wealth, of power, of authority. Social justice tends to argue this way. This is a generalization, but I think it it holds true um, most of the time. Social justice tends to argue this way. Well, more of group X, whatever that is, fill in the blank, more of group X gets into the best colleges and universities than group Y. And that proves that there is injustice. Or... More of group X are CEOs of companies than group Y, and that proves injustice. Or more of group X are incarcerated than group Y, and that shows that there's injustice. Or more of people in group X, uh, excuse me, people in group X on average have a higher income than people in group Y. And that is evidence of injustice. And, of course, there's a, there is a logical fallacy here that the correlation is proof of causation. Just because one thing is associated with something else doesn't mean that the one thing is the cause of something else. But the logic of some of the social justice movement, at least a good bit of it, seems to be exactly that simplistic. That inequality of outcome proves injustice. That if any people are unequal in some way or another, that is definitive proof that there is injustice at work. Again, I think this is not the biblical and valid conception of justice. Inequality itself can be either just or unjust. There is a distinction between equal opportunity, equality of opportunity under the law, and equality of outcome. There is a difference between traditional or biblical justice, which is access to an impartial process, which is what Leviticus is describing, that the process needs to be impartial, not favoring the rich or favoring the poor. Biblically, justice is access to an impartial process rather than demand for a uniformity of outcome. <clears throat> and there are several passages um, that that probably would help us to think uh, of these things. Just to mention a couple, um, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. Uh, the Lord is talking in this context about um, gifts that God gives, spiritual gifts in particular, remember that? And he describes the various kinds of uh, of spiritual gifts and abilities and opportunities that God gives to his people. And they're many, they're varied, and there are some that are very public 
gifts that everyone notices, right? Those are, of course, the ones that the Corinthians wanted, for example. We want the, the tongues and the healing and the miracles and the ones that are really spectacular outwardly. Um, and then there are those quiet, um, behind-the-scenes kind of gifts. And there are different measures of gifts. Even two people with the same giftedness um, have different measures of those things. How does all that come about? And Paul's answer through the Holy Spirit is this, that these gifts are given according to, quote, the measure of faith that God has assigned. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the same uh, types of things, saying that the Spirit, quote, apportions to each one individually as he wills. In other words, it's the Spirit of God who gives to one person more of a particular giftedness in one area or another, more opportunity, a certain kind of situation and calling that is unique to that person that another person might say, look at and say, that's more than what I have. Um, and, you know, we're all of us probably tempted to look at other people who are more gifted or more effective in some way or another, and, and uh, because we are sinners, tend to not be satisfied with making the most of what we have been given, but being envious of what the other person has been given, right? Um, in Luke chapter 19... Verses 17 and 19, Jesus seems to indicate that there will be varying degrees of reward in heaven. That some believers will be rewarded in a uh, a greater way than others. And this is going to be in the place where absolute divine justice reigns, right? Not everyone will be the same. All of our gifts and abilities aren't all equaled out in eternity any more than they are here and now in this life. So if if inequality then does not automatically mean injustice, if people being different and unequal in certain ways does not automatically give evidence of injustice, then what are the causes of inequality that we find in the world? What are the causes of inequality? And there are probably more, but four uh, came to my mind. Number one, one of the causes of inequality in our world is the sovereign choice of God. God just chooses to sovereignly bestow His gifts, abilities, opportunities, and callings to a greater degree upon some people than upon others in different ways and in different measures. God does not make everyone the same. And this is no charge biblically that God is in any way unjust. God has a right to make with one lump of clay whatever sort of vessel He will. Uh, God has chosen, for example, to make some of us males and some of us females. This is the sovereign choice of God. That is the only thing that caused that difference to be what it is in the way that you find yourself. And 
As such, He has called us to different roles, different responsibilities in our families, different uh, different roles. This is God's sovereign choice. So you have to say in the first place that some of the inequalities, the differences in our world are just up to up to the Lord. <clears throat> what what are we to do um, in this regard? What what we are to do is to take what we have been given, what our calling is, and make the most of it underneath the sovereign decree of God, the sovereign direction of God through His Word. So whatever our calling, whatever our abilities, whatever our opportunities, those we are to make the most of. But God chooses how those are divided up. Number two, another reason for the inequality that we find in the world is different um, degrees of personal diligence. Different degrees of personal diligence. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4 uh, says that the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while uh, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Okay? Now these are proverbs, these are general statements about the way that God has designed the universe to work. And of course, there are complications because of situations, because of sin. But in general, this is the way the world works. Those who are diligent will be seen to be beneficial, will be helpful, will be rewarded, will be recognized, and will be, as the text says, richly supplied. On the other hand, he comments that the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. In other words, those who lack diligence, don't have as much as the diligent person has. Of course, what it doesn't change about that person who doesn't exercise diligence to the same level as someone else, what it doesn't change about him is his desire. He still craves. So in other words, I can look back on times in my life where I was not as diligent as I should have been. And I was not as diligent as someone else. But you know what I found? In my own sinfulness, that did not stop me from rising up with deep envy of that person. And that, that envy dynamic is a big part of what's at play in our world. But many of the differences have to be put down biblically to the idea of personal diligence with what we have been given. Critical theory looks at individuals from minorities, oppressed groups as they would see them, and and those individuals who have actually thrived within the broader culture and have looked at those people and tended to be dismissive of them, discounting of them, that these, uh, that their... Their advancement has not been because of hard work or diligence, but rather that they've sold out to the hegemony, to the powerful, to the oppressors. They're deluded. They're not woke enough. They don't understand that they're being used. They're being played. 
And so every example to the contrary is dismissed out of hand. The discussion, in other words, is purposely framed so as to create the impossibility of contradiction. But there are differences in our world and inequalities in some measure because of differences in personal diligence with what we have been given. A third reason I think that there are differences or inequalities of outcome in the world, inequalities of situation, is because of varying degrees of application of wisdom. And this is maybe similar to what I just said, but I would define wisdom in a broader way than just diligence. By wisdom, I mean this. Wisdom is living life well within the world as God actually created it to be. As the world as it actually is, as God actually made it, believing what God said about the world, living with the grain rather than against the grain of the way that the world was, was set up by the Creator God. That's wisdom. Living life skillfully, living life well. And there are different degrees of application of wisdom that people have made. And I say that the, that, that, that affects, um, that causes some of the differences that we see between people in our world. And some of these applications of wisdom is affected, uh, are affected by our cultural affinity. And this is where I started last week, right? By trying to, to, to draw out a biblical, um, theology of culture and how culture springs from our values and our beliefs. And so because of that, not all cultures are the same. Not all cultures are equally valid and good, um, which meets with cries, anguished cries of cultural imperialism and neocolonialism among some people. But we, and, and certainly, I think, as Christian people, we need to do a lot more careful and thoughtful job of parsing Western culture. Parts of which are biblically founded, and much of which is sinfully tainted. And so, as Christians, we shouldn't just, just sort of wholeheartedly adopt certain elements of culture, but realize that maybe there's a biblical foundation there, but there's also some, some sinful taint in, the, in, in those elements of culture. Um, Christians need to do the hard work and the careful thought of figuring out um, which parts are biblically founded and what are not, and what to what extent that what is biblical is sinfully tainted. But if there's one thing, uh, but it's one thing to, to advocate for the reformation of sort of Christendom and Western culture, that should be done. It's another thing to advocate for revolution, the fundamental overthrow of the Christian foundations of our culture. Some of the inequalities are at least largely the result of differences in either personal diligence or in applications of wisdom, that is, a biblical 
um, worldview to uh, all of life. Uh, Thomas Sowell, the famed uh, economist, social theorist, recipient of the National Humanities Medal, wrote this, the poverty rate among black married couples has been less than 10% every year since 1994. As far back as 1969, young black males whose homes included newspapers, magazines, and library cards had incomes similar to those of their white counterparts. Academic outcomes, academic outcomes, show a pattern of disparities similar to the pattern of disparities in the amount of time devoted to schoolwork. He ends, apparently, lifestyle choices have major consequences. And uh, Sol, of course, was, was black, a black man. He was a black man. Doesn't matter, though, to um, critical race theory because Sol is part of the problem of whiteness, which is not really about skin color in critical theory. It's about a certain ideology. And that's where, you know, that's where all these terms start to get confusing, right? And we're like... Yes and no, and I don't know. Because now words are being used in, in ways that, that, we, that we may not all be on the same page. Soul is part of the problem of whiteness because it's not really about skin color, but about ideology. The Smithsonian Institution defines whiteness uh, in one uh, section of their website this way. Whiteness refers to the way that white people their customs, culture, and beliefs operate as the standard by which all other groups are compared. And I think that belies the fact that the real antagonist in critical race theory, for example, is not people with white skin, per se, not people with certain genetics or an ethnicity. This is rather a social construct. That the problem is a certain set of customs and values and culture and beliefs, right? That's literally the words they're using. It's, it's the idea that certain customs, culture, and beliefs are viewed as the standard by which everything ought to be judged. Now, <laughs> this, of course, is exactly what Christians believe that there are customs, there are beliefs, there is a culture that springs from those beliefs and customs that spring from those beliefs that are built on a, on a more biblical foundation or a less biblical foundation. And that God's word on matters of righteousness and justice is the last word. That we cannot think rightly about righteousness as a concept, apart from divine revelation. That's where the category comes from. It's the only place. And And so this really is cutting at the heart of what Christians are about. And, and of course, the, the, the use of the terminology of whiteness is only thrown in to muddy the waters. <clears throat> Another example of this kind of thing is in 2012, there 
uh, a group called the National Center for Transgender Equality released a national survey after sampling many self-identified transgender people they found that, quote, our sample was nearly four times more likely to have a household income of less than $10,000 a year compared to the general population. They found that their population, those who identified as transgender, were twice as likely to be homeless as the general population. And sadly, found that Transgender people were 25 times more likely to attempt suicide than the rest of the general population. Do you want to know what the title of this survey was called? Injustice at every turn. So the, 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 the equation is being made here between inequality, right, more likely to to commit suicide or attempt suicide, horror, etc., etc. This is proof of injustice, or this is an indication of injustice at every turn. But a Christian has to ask whether these inequalities are the result of true injustice, or are they perhaps, at least in part, a result of living life against the grain of the way God made the world to actually work. In other words, there's more than just one cause, and and, and so often the world is just, um, you know, there is this sense, there is this inherent sense of, of, uh, of right and wrong that's so skewed because it refuses to look for definitions of those things to the only place where it could find them. And of course, when we see inequality in the world that we might attribute to personal failings or lack of wisdom, that should never make us smug or proud or condescending. For all that we have that makes us any different in any good way is all of grace, yeah, all of grace. Rather, it should lead us to voluntarily sacrifice ourselves to seek to help, to mature, to mentor, to deal with the root of the suffering that we see in our world by proclaiming the gospel and by trying to help people to understand to live by God's revelation, His wisdom. Our lack of involvement in those kinds of endeavors, real selfless involvement, just kind of sitting back in our own comfortable worlds, our lack of involvement should probably humble us to be honest. We need more Alaski-style ministries, by which I mean ministries to help those who are suffering that really try to get at some of the roots 
of why they're suffering, not just giving a handout. So again, these are some of the, um, at least some of the causes of inequalities that come, uh, that that are the cause of uh, inequalities that come into the world, that we see in the world, from my perspective. But there's one more, and that is that some of the inequalities in our world are are caused by real wicked injustice. And we shouldn't we shouldn't realize we shouldn't pass over the fact that there are true injustices being perpetrated in our world, and some of the inequalities of the world are attributed to just that sinful expression. That is a failing to apply God's law equally across society, and that has been and is a reality in our world. Failing to apply God's law in equal ways across society. And that, I say, is another cause of the inequalities in our world. In other words, friends, it's a reminder that sin is a reality, and it really does affect our world. There is lazy, reductionistic thinking on both sides, i.e., the conservative side and the liberal side. I think it's a mistake for us to say, well, racism is entirely a thing of the past, no longer has any measurable effects on minorities in our country. For us to think that there are no major problems or abuses in our economic system is naive at best. Ignoring what we say we hold to, that is the doctrine of total depravity, which should cause us not to be surprised that True injustice is one of the reasons for all of the troubles that we see in our world today and should cause us to stand against real injustices injustices, wherever we find them. When a law is immoral or when it is applied unequally and due process is thwarted, these things should be opposed. And in all of this, I just would end this way, you know, if, if, if we, if our only hope is to find a place of real, perfect justice in this world under the sun, I think we're going to walk away like the writer of Ecclesiastes and say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. At the end of the world, the the thing that gives Christians true hope, and I'm talking about so sometimes Christians who are, like many of our brothers and sisters all around the world, truly suffering real injustices. The, the, The thing that will ultimately give hope is the fact that there is a God who judges all things. And in the end, all will be made right. Which is the way the book of Ecclesiastes ends, isn't it? Fear God, and remember that in the end He will recompense to all men. My prayer is that God would continue to give us grace not to have knee-jerk reactions um, to the things that we hear, or reductionistic thinking, as is the case in so many on both sides of the social debates, but to keep doing the hard work 
of trying to think God's thoughts after Him. I realize in closing this thought, this talk does not answer very many questions, probably, uh, but my, my hope is that it gives us, it reminds us of a biblical framework for thinking through questions that arise and situations that pop up in the news and all around us and things that, that people are talking about. So may the Lord give us that grace. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. You and you alone have revealed what is right and true. We ask that you would grant us courage to stand on what you have said and to think well about all the complexities that we see and hear about. Please continue to strengthen your people. Raise up good Christian thinkers about all of the issues that we need to think about. I pray right now, I'm asking you again and again, that you would continue to raise up people who would who would give themselves to truly understanding the world and who would then be committed to a robust biblical view of the world that would continue to help us all uh, to move forward on these issues, we ask. Thank you now for your people. Help us to be a blessing. Lord, help us not to overlook the needy around us and uh, move us, Lord, to do what we should. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name, amen.